Section 13 of the Book of Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Ghosts by Sabine Barring Gould. Section 13. The river Visere leaps to life among the granite of the Limousin, forms a fine cascade, the Sodilaverole, and then after a rapid descent over mica schist, it passes into the region of red sandstone at Brive, and swelled with affluence, it suddenly penetrates a chalk district where it has scooped out for itself a valley between precipices some two to three hundred feet high. These precipices are not perpendicular, but overhang, because the upper crust is harder than the stone it caps, and atmospheric influences, rain and frost, have gnawed into the chalk below, so that the cliffs hang forward as penthouse roofs, forming shelters beneath them. And these shelters have been utilized by man from the period when the first occupants of the district arrived at a vastly remote period, almost uninterruptedly to the present day. When peasants live beneath these roofs of nature's providing, they simply wall up the face and ends to form houses of the cheapest description of construction, with the earth as the floor and one wall and the roof of living rock into which they burrow to form cupboards, bed-places, and cellars. The refuse of all ages is superposed, like the leaves of a book, one stratum above another in orderly succession. If we shear down through these beds, we can read the history of the land, so far as its manufacture goes, beginning at the present day and going down, down, to the times of primeval man. Now, after every meal, the peasant casts down the bones he has picked. He does not stoop to collect and cast forth the sherds of a broken pot. And if a sou falls and rolls away in the dust of these gloomy habitations, it gets trampled into the soil to form another token of the period of occupation. When the first man settled here, the climatic conditions were different. The mammoth, or woolly elephant, the hyena, the cave bear, and the reindeer ranged the land. Then naked savages, using only flint tools, crouched under these rocks. They knew nothing of metals and of pottery. They hunted and ate the horse. They had no dogs, no oxen, no sheep. Glaciers covered the center of France and reached down the Visere Valley as far as to Brive. These people passed away, whither we know not. The reindeer retreated to the north, the hyena to Africa, which was then united to Europe. The mammoth became extinct altogether. After long ages, another people, in a higher condition of culture, but who also used flint tools and weapons, appeared on the scene and took possession of the abandoned rock shelters. They fashioned their implements in a different manner by flaking the flint in place of chipping it. They understood the art of the potter, they grew flax and wove linen. They had domestic animals, and the dog had become the friend of man. And their flint weapons they succeeded in bringing to a high polish by incredible labor and perseverance. Then came in the age of bronze, introduced from abroad, probably from the east, 
as its great depot was in the basin of the Po. Next arrived the Gauls, armed with weapons of iron. They were subjugated by the Romans, and Roman Gaul in turn became a prey to the Goth and the Frank. History has begun and is in full swing. The medieval period succeeded, and finally the modern age, and man now lives on top of the accumulation of all the preceding epochs of men and stages of civilization. In no other part of France, indeed of Europe, is the story of man told so plainly that he who runs may read, and ever since the middle of last century, when this fact was recognized, the district has been studied and explorations have been made there, some slovenly, others scientifically. A few years ago I was induced to visit this remarkable region, and to examine it attentively. I had been furnished with letters of recommendation from the authorities of the great museum of national antiquities at St. Germain, to enable me to prosecute my researches unmolested by over-suspicious gendarmes and ignorant mayors. Under one overhanging rock was a cabaret or tavern announcing that wine was sold there by a withered bush above the door. The place seemed to me to be a probable spot for my exploration. I entered into an arrangement with the proprietor to enable me to dig, he stipulating that I should not undermine and throw down his walls. I engaged six laborers, and began proceeding by driving a tunnel some little way below the tavern into the vast bed of debris. The upper series of deposits did not concern me much. The point I desired to investigate, and if possible to determine, was the approximate length of time that had elapsed between the disappearance of the reindeer hunters and the coming on the scene of the next race, that which used polished stone implements and had domestic animals. Although it may seem at first sight as if both races had been savage, as both lived in the Stone Age, yet an enormous stride forward had been taken when men had learned the arts of weaving, of pottery, and had tamed the dog, the horse, and the cow. These new folk had passed out of the mere wild condition of the hunter, and had become pastoral, and to some extent agricultural. Of course the data for determining the length of a period might be a few, but I could judge whether a very long or very brief period had elapsed between the two occupations by the depth of the debris, chalk fallen from the roof brought down by frost, in which were no traces of human workmanship. It was with this distinct object in view that I drove my adit into the slope of rubbish some way below the cabaret, and I chanced to have hit on the level of the deposits of the men of bronze. Not that we found much bronze, all we secured was a broken pin, but we came on fragments of pottery marked with a chevron and nail and twisted thong ornament peculiar to that people and age. My men were engaged for about a week before we reached the face of the chalk cliff. We found the work not so easy as I had anticipated. Masses of rock had become detached from above and had fallen, so that we had either to quarry through them or to circumvent them. The soil was of the curious coffee color so inseparable from the chalk formation. We found many things brought down from above, a coin commemorative of the storming of the Bastille, 
and some small pieces of the latter Roman emperors. But all of these were, of course, not in the solid ground below, but near the surface. When we had reached the face of the cliff, instead of sinking a shaft, I determined on carrying a gallery down an incline, keeping the rock as a wall on my right, till I reached the bottom of all. The advantage of making an incline was that there was no hauling up of the earth by a bucket let down over a pulley, and it was easier for myself to descend. I had not made my tunnel wide enough, and it was torturous. When I began to sink, I set two of the men to smash up the masses of fallen chalk rock, so as to widen the tunnel, so that I might use barrows. I gave strict orders that all the material brought up was to be picked over by two of the most intelligent of the men, outside in the blaze of the sun. I was not desirous of sinking too expeditiously. I wished to proceed slowly, cautiously, observing every stage as we went deeper. We got below the layer in which were the relics of the Bronze Age and of the men of polished stone, and then we passed through many feet of earth that rendered nothing, and finally came on the traces of the reindeer period. To understand how that there should be a considerable depth of the debris of the men of the rude stone implements, it must be explained that these men made their hearths on the bare ground, and feasted around their fires, throwing about them the bones they had picked, and the ashes and broken and disused implements, till the ground was inconveniently encumbered. Then they swept all the refuse together over their old hearth, and established another on top, and so the process went on from generation to generation. For the scientific results of my exploration, I must refer the reader to the journals and memoirs of learned societies. I will not trouble him with them here. On the ninth day, after we had come to the face of the cliff, and when we had reached a considerable depth, we uncovered some human bones. I immediately adopted special precautions so that these should not be disturbed. With the utmost care, the soil was removed from over them, and it took us half a day to completely clear a perfect skeleton. It was that of a full-grown man, lying on his back, with the skull supported against the wall of chalk rock. He did not seem to have been buried. Had he been so, he would doubtless have been laid on his side in a contracted posture, with the chin resting upon the knees. One of the men pointed out to me that a mass of fallen rock lay beyond his feet, and had apparently shut him in so that he died through suffocation, buried under the earth that the rock had brought down with it. I at once dispatched a man to my hotel to fetch my camera, that I might by flashlight take a photograph of the skeleton as it lay, and another I sent to get from the chemist and grocer as much gum arabic and isinglass as could be procured. My object was to give to the bones a bath of gum to render them less brittle when removed, restoring to them the gelatin that had been absorbed by the earth and lime in which they lay. Thus I was left alone at the bottom of my passage, the four men above being engaged in straightening the adit and sifting the earth. 
I was quite content to be alone, so that I might at my ease search for traces of personal ornament worn by the man who had thus met his death. The place was somewhat cramped, and there really was not room in it for more than one person to work freely. Whilst I was thus engaged, I suddenly heard a shout, followed by a crash, and to my dismay, an avalanche of rubble shot down the inclined passage of descent. I at once left the skeleton and hastened to effect my exit, but found that this was impossible. Much of the superincumbent earth and stone had fallen, dislodged by the vibrations caused by the picks of the men smashing up the chalk blocks, and the passage was completely choked. I was sealed up in the hollow where I was, and thankful that the earth above me had not fallen as well and buried me. A man of the present enlightened age, along with a primeval savage of eight thousand years ago. A large amount of matter must have fallen, for I could not hear the voices of the men. I was not seriously alarmed. The workmen would procure assistance, and labor indefatigably to release me. Of that I could be certain. But how much earth had fallen? How much of the passage was choked? And how long would they take before I was released? All that was uncertain. I had a candle, or rather a bit of one, and it was not probable that it would last till the passage was cleared. What made me most anxious was the question whether the supply of air in the hollow in which I was enclosed would suffice. My enthusiasm for prehistoric research failed me just then. All my interests were concentrated on the present, and I gave up groping about the skeleton for relics. I seated myself on a stone, set the candle in a socket of chalk I had scooped out with my pocket-knife, and awaited events with my eyes on the skeleton. Time passed somewhat wearily. I could hear an occasional thud, thud, when the men were using the pick, but they mostly employed the shovel, as I supposed. I set my elbow on my knees and rested my chin in my hands. The air was not cold, nor was the soil damp. It was dry as snuff. The flicker of my light played over the man of bones, and especially illumined the skull. It may have been fancy on my part, it probably was fancy, but it seemed to me as though something sparkled in the eye sockets. Drops of water possibly lodged there, or crystals formed within the skull. But the effect was much as of eyes leering and winking at me. I lighted my pipe, and to my disgust found that my supply of matches was running short. In France the manufacture belongs to the state, and one gets but sixty alumets for a penny. I had not brought my watch with me below ground, fearing lest it might meet with an accident. Consequently, I was unable to reckon how time passed. I began counting and ticking off the minutes on my fingers, but soon tired of doing this. My candle was getting short. It would not last much longer. Then I should be in the dark. I consoled myself with the thought that, with the extinction of a light, the consumption of the oxygen in the air would be less rapid. My eyes now rested on the flame of the candle, and I watched the gradual diminution of the composite. It was one of those abominable bogies with holes in them to economize the wax 
and which consequently had less than the proper amount of material for feeding and maintaining a flame. At length the light went out, and I was left in total darkness. I might have used up the rest of my matches, one after another, but to what good? They would prolong the period of illumination for but a very little while. A sense of numbness stole over me. But I was not as yet sensible of deficiency of air to breathe. I found that the stone on which I was seated was pointed and hard, but I did not like to shift my position for fear of getting among and disturbing the bones, and I was still desirous of having them photographed in situ before they were moved. I was not alarmed at my situation. I knew that I must be released eventually, but the tedium of sitting there in the dark and on a pointed stone was becoming intolerable. Some time must have elapsed before I became dimly at first and then distinctly aware of a bluish phosphorescent emanation from the skeleton. This seemed to rise above it like a faint smoke, which gradually gained consistency, took form, and became distinct, and I saw before me the misty, luminous form of a naked man, with wolfish countenance, prognathous jaws, glaring at me out of eyes deeply sunk under projecting brows. Although I thus describe what I saw, yet it gave me no idea of substance. It was vaporous, and yet it was articulate. Indeed, I cannot say at this moment whether I actually saw this apparition with my eyes, or whether it was a dreamlike vision of the brain. Though luminous, it cast no light on the walls of the cave. If I raised my hand, it did not obscure any portion of the form presented to me. And then I heard, I will tear you with the nails of my fingers and toes and rip you with my teeth. What have I done to injure and incense you? I asked. End of section 13